We are so very grateful today to have Sammy Awad with us. Sammy is a uh, really big deal. Uh, he would never tell you that because he's so humble. A couple weeks ago, I talked in our sermon as we started the book of Acts, we talked about how uh, we were called to be waiters, people who wait, and then we're called to be witnesses. Sammy and, and the Christian friends that he has gathered and assembled in their ministry are doing that in a powerful way in a very difficult part of our world. They are waiting in, in so much as they've been waiting a long time and trusting God. And then they're also witnessing. And they're witnessing to Jesus Christ by the way they love enemies and by the way they model Christian life in the middle of a very, very hostile and difficult place. Uh, Sammy comes to us all the way from Bethlehem, uh, where he lives, and it is my uh, real joy and honor to be able to uh, introduce him and have him in our pulpit today. So welcome, Samuel Watt. Good morning, everyone. It is really, really exciting to be with you today. I'm just filled with joy. More since we started the service than what I came with this morning. And then the reason is, uh, one of the reasons is the song that we just sang. You'll, you'll know we are Christians by our love. It's that simple. It's not by our preaching. It's not by our teaching. It's not by our charity. It's not by our theology. They will know we are the sons and daughters of Christ only by loving them. So thank you. Thank you for this. Um, I'm here this morning to share my story with you. And it is a story of a journey of a family and a person who is trying to understand what does it mean to love? What does it mean to love your neighbor? And what does it mean to love your enemy? And how do you live this love and express this love in the midst of one of the most difficult, violent, places in the world today, a place that's not just filled with violence, but this deep animosity and hatred of groups of people towards each other, where logically, actually, it is justified for the Israelis to hate the Palestinians, for the Palestinians to hate the Israelis. There is actually logical explanation that justifies this hatred. So when hatred and animosity are justified, when we actually believe this is the way it should be, what is the role of the church? What is the, Lord, the role of those who have committed their life to following Christ? How do we break cycles of violence, cycles of animosity and hatred towards each other? My story, like the story of many people who live in the Holy Land, begins with a common opening line, which is, in 1948, even though, of course, many of us claim to have history there that goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years, but of course, as many of you know, 1948 was a major milestone, a trigger of change in the Holy Land. As the Jews were celebrating the establishment of the State of Israel, my family, as a Palestinian family, and many other Palestinian families were actually suffering what we call the Nakba, which means the catastrophe. So one group is celebrating, 
and one group is experiencing the catastrophe. My father's family lived in Jerusalem. They lived in an area right outside the old city. If you've been to the old city in Jerusalem, you, you know how beautiful that place is. One of the things that many people don't realize in the U.S. and in the West, and we as the communities of the land seem to forget, sometimes purposely, is the fact that in neighborhoods like this and many, many other neighborhoods, Jews, Christians, and Muslims actually lived in peace with each other. You know, we hear stories of people saying this is a historic religious conflict that's been going on for thousands of years since the times of the children of Abraham. And it's too complicated. They've been doing it forever. What can we do? That's not the reality. That's not the truth. The neighborhood that my father grew up in actually was a neighborhood when, where he, as a child, as a Christian child with the Muslim children, didn't just befriend their neighbors, the Jewish families. They were the ones who were responsible during Shabbat, which is the Jewish uh, holiday, Friday and Saturday, to actually go into the Jewish homes to turn on and off the stoves and turn on and off the lights for them. Because in the tradition, some of the Orthodox tradition, Jewish tradition, they don't even do that. So these little Christian and Muslim kids would go to the Jewish homes and help them out in what these Jewish families needed. But of course, 1948 came and changed that whole reality. My grandfather was killed in the war as a civilian. He wasn't involved in any combat. And my grandmother, with her seven children, became refugees. You probably heard the concept of Palestinian refugees. So we were part of that big population that left their home. And my father's family grew up in very, very poor, difficult conditions. They lost everything. They lost their father, the home they owned, the private schooling they went to, the friends they had. In a sense, they lost their future. They absolutely had no future to look forward to. And again, it is justified to hate and to resent those who did this to us. Not just hatred is justified, but actually wanting to retaliate, wanting to take revenge is justified as well. It, if it wasn't for my grandmother, probably the family would be one that would have gone that path. But my grandmother was a faithful person, a very committed Christian, and she understood her Christianity to be one where revenge and retaliation had no place for us as a family. But she went more than that, and she actually said, but as Christians, we are to be peacemakers. We are to proactively engage in peace and reconciliation. And one of her famous lines that she kept repeating until she even passed away was that the greatest justice that we can attain as a family is when we actually make peace and we reconcile with those who did this to us. Doesn't make sense. But that's how she understood her faith. Our justice is when we make peace with those who killed our father. That's what she was telling her children, and that's what she taught us as grandchildren. Growing up in Bethlehem wasn't easy. I grew up in a situation where having this 
narrative of the family and this teaching in the family, I had to put that against the reality. And the, re the reality that I lived was a reality that everything out there told me I am to hate Israelis for what they're doing to me. Oppression, occupation, control, every aspect of our life as Palestinians was, and for many situations continues to be controlled by the Israeli government and military. And again, I had every justification, every excuse to hate them for what they were doing, not just to us as a people, but even as a family. My father was principal of an orphanage and the Israeli army would raid that orphanage many times for absolutely no reason. I would see soldiers, Israeli soldiers, just a few years older than me, yell and shout at my father, and my father do absolutely nothing. And I couldn't do anything about it. So it was confusing. How do you love those who don't even want to love you? How do you make peace with those who don't even want to make peace with you? They just hate you. They want to occupy you. And it was very, very challenging for me growing up. But in the family and in the teachings of the family, the concept of nonviolence kept coming up for us. And an uncle of mine started actually engaging in nonviolence as a practice within the Palestinian community, teaching nonviolence to the Palestinians, like what Gandhi did in, in India or Reverend King in the US. He became actually known as the Gandhi of the Middle East because of his work in nonviolence. And because of his work in nonviolence, he was actually arrested by the Israeli government. He was put on trial and he was deported. He was kicked out from the land specifically because of working in nonviolence. And many Israelis were shocked and they stood in protest against their government and military. Why would a nonviolent peace activist be seen as a threat? Even though at that time also many Palestinians supported and many Palestinians rejected what my uncle was teaching. So it's not about Palestinians doing nonviolence and Israelis being violent. It's mixed and continues to be until this day. After Michael was deported, I said, I really want to find out what is so powerful about nonviolence that makes this happen. And so I came to the U.S. I did my education, did a master's degree in peace and conflict resolution, and went back home to serve my community, to serve the Palestinian community. And I started an organization called Holy Land Trust, and we began engaging in nonviolent resistance and activism. And we became very well known for the work we were doing. Well known by people who liked us and well known by people who did not like us. And we would organize demonstrations and protests. Palestinians and Israelis coming together to resist and to fight the occupation. Even internationals coming in solidarity with us. And if people asked me at that time, do you think you're doing what Jesus is teaching you to do? Is this what Jesus would engage in if he was in your place? I would immediately say yes. Because I fully believe that Jesus would be a nonviolent activist. He would resist injustice and oppression through nonviolence. And at the same time, I would say things like, and Jesus would stand with the oppressed against the oppressor. 
He would stand with the occupied against the occupier. He would stand with the victim against the victimizer. And I think I said it too many times for Jesus, Jesus' liking, and he had to teach me a lesson. And the lesson that Jesus was teaching me and continues to teach me on a daily basis is that he actually does not stand against anybody. Even in caring for the compassion and can having compassion for the poor and for those who are experiencing injustice, Jesus would never stand against those who were doing the oppression. That he actually loves them all. Loves the victim and the victimizer. And that understanding came to me in actually reading the, the passage that we read this morning from the New Testament. It was one of those days where I decided I want to read the whole gospel. I don't know if any of you have had those, how many moments we come to, okay, I'm going to read the whole Bible this time. And you open the book of Genesis, and then you jump to Matthew. That's, that's what I did. So I'm reading Matthew, reading the Sermon on the Mount, and, and the, the, those lines were so powerful to me, especially three words from that message. They popped into my face as if I've never read them before in my life. And the words were, love your enemy. I tell you, love your enemy. And that's when I realized there, that Jesus would engage differently in conflict. Even when I was doing nonviolence, it would be a different understanding than what I had done in the past. The first thing I realized in reading those words was that it's a commandment. You know, Jesus doesn't tell us, I would like for you one day to consider loving your enemy. Or I hope you reach such a spiritual, enlightened phase of your life in your following me that 50 years from now you will begin to love your enemy. If you want to follow me today, you want to follow me right now, you are to love your enemy. Any person, any group, any community, any nation that you actually have an animosity with, there is only one way to deal with it. It's through love. That's the only thing that actually Jesus talks about when it comes to those who we have labeled as enemies. We are to love them and to pray for them. And so I began to really ask myself, what does it mean to love the enemy? What does it mean to express love to an enemy who doesn't even trust me, who, doesn't, who actually sees me as a threat to him as well? And very interestingly, in that time, as I'm going through this struggle, um, a Jewish couple from the U.S., friends of mine, called me up and asked me to join them on a pilgrimage that they organize every year. And they said, we have no idea why we are to call you, why we called you. We just felt, and for me it was God actually telling them to invite you on this pilgrimage with us that we organize every year. And it's a pilgrimage to the death camps of Auschwitz and Bergenau in Poland, where the Holocaust happened. And for me, I went there because I fully believe that this is what God wanted me to do. 
and I was witness to one of the greatest atrocities in human history, the Holocaust and what happened to the Jewish people. And over there, I began to see my enemy. My enemy wasn't the Israeli soldier, it wasn't the Israeli settler, it wasn't even an Israeli politician who was making racist remarks and speeches against the Arabs or the Palestinians. It was what was behind all of this. And I began to realize how so often we define people by their actions and that becomes their identity. And we completely ignore if there's anything behind it. What caused them to do this to us? Because in a sense, we logically don't want to justify the action, that there is a reason behind it. They're just bad people. They're just evil people. They're just racist. That's why they do the things they do. And never ask, maybe there's something behind this. And I saw the trauma. I saw the fear that was born in the Jewish community because of the Holocaust. And not just the Holocaust, centuries of discrimination and racism and bigotry against the Jewish people. And in continuing reading the gospel, I began to see how Jesus would deal with this. So what would Jesus do in a situation like this? And going back in Matthew, in reading uh, Matthew 4.23, I began to understand how Jesus actually dealt with situations like this. And in Matthew 4.23, the gospel says, Jesus went through the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness amongst the people. If we ask ourselves, what did Jesus do in this world when he walked with us? Three things, teaching, preaching, and healing. And I think this is what the role of the church is today. When it comes to conflict, when it comes to situations of animosity, we could choose sides. You know, the moment I say in many churches I'm a Palestinian, I could feel the energy in some people's like, Palestinian, or an Israeli, ooh, or a Jew, Christian, Muslim, black, white, Latino, you name it. You name the different groups and how they trigger something. So Jesus wasn't about making peace treaties and peace agreements. It was about bringing the kingdom and the kingdom of love into this earth. And the way he dealt with the past was actually healing the past. Jesus did not heal to show off. I hope you realize it's not like, oh, how look, I'm healing you guys. Jesus healed because healing is what liberates people from the past. Jesus healed so that people can be free to engage in building their future. And that's the role of the church. That's the role I think we are called to do in the situation of the greatest conflicts. We are to heal and bring compassion and care to those who are suffering. And all people are suffering in the Holy Land. So healing is what we do to the past. Teaching is what he did in the present. He was teaching us how to live our lives. How do we relate to our enemy? How do we relate to our friends, to our neighbors? How do we relate to our husbands and wives? How do we relate to our children? 
So there's tremendous teaching that Jesus was giving us about the present. And preaching was about the future. Because he did not just want us to live a good life. He wanted us to live a kingdom life, a godly life. He wanted us to seek the greater future. Kingdom is about the future. So preaching was about the future. Teaching is about the present. And healing is about the past. And this has become a big part of our work. And, and I'm, you know, in, in a situation where there's conflict, and all of you have probably heard about Gaza and the war that happened there, I am not here to ignore and deny the tremendous violence that people faced there. But I want to tell you that there is good news. There is light in the midst of all this darkness. And the light is people who are coming together, looking into the Word of God, and are saying, we can do something different. We can stand for the Palestinians. We can stand for the Israelis. We can stand for peace. We can stand for justice. We can stand for equality. Because first and for foremost, we stand for Jesus. So my challenge to you today actually has nothing to do with Palestine and Israel and the Holy Land. It is a challenge to ask yourself, where do you stand in the face of the people that you have labeled or they have labeled you as enemies? And it could be somebody actually sitting next to you now, or a community, a neighbor, an ethnic group, that there is animosity. And I cannot challenge the church in the U.S. to begin working in the Middle East when we have these animosities and feelings within our congregations here. So the challenge is to really begin working on healing those wounds that caused this animosity to happen and working to build that future of the kingdom in this land and in this nation. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, I just thank you, thank you, thank you for every opportunity that you bring your sons and daughters together to worship you. We recognize that on this day, there are churches around the world, there are followers that simply cannot even meet. They cannot even come together because of war, because of persecution, because of violence. And we pray for those that you bless them. And in the midst of their dark moments, you relieve them from any hatred and animosity and bring your love to them because that's how they will know that they are your followers by the love that they will give to those who persecute them. And I pray for every single individual here. And I pray for their struggles, their conflicts, the situations where they are in war, and that you open their eyes to a different reality, not the reality of hatred and justifying anger and violence 
but in a reality that says love conquers all. And love frees us from all fear. I pray for the Holy Land and the people that live in the Holy Land. No matter how they identify themselves. Jew, Christian, Muslim, Palestinian or Israeli. That you bring your mercy and love and grace to every heart. Because you actually love every person there. Because you actually created every person there. Heal the hatred in the hearts of the people of the Holy Land today. So the Holy Land can become a land that shines your light and love to the world. In your holy and loving name I pray. Amen.